Please take your Bibles this evening and you can turn with me if you'd like to Jeremiah 28. We're not going to be there for very long. We're actually going to be parking uh, in numbers for a good portion of the evening. The last two times we have been together, we studied through Jeremiah 28 and 29. First, of course, Jeremiah 28, which consisted of what we might effectively call what I call the prophet's duel, right? Jeremiah and Hananiah, uh, both claiming to be prophets of the Lord, both with very, very different messages. Hananiah saying within two years, all will be brought back to Jerusalem. Jeremiah saying that would be really nice, but it's not going to happen. That duel ended with uh, God declaring to Hananiah that he would die within the year. And as we considered this together, we saw God tell Hananiah explicitly why it was that he was going to die. And we read this in Jeremiah 28, verses 15 and 16. The Bible says, Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord, he would die. He would be cast off the face of the earth, is how God described it within the year. Then last week we went to Jeremiah 29, and, and the message was very positive last week, right? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to bring unto you an expected end. And we focused in on that promise of the Lord, whereby he took the, the captivity of Babylon and he shaded it to reflect his mercy rather than his judgment. Jeremiah 25, 70 years judgment. Jeremiah 29, 70 years until I can show you mercy, right? was the difference between those two. And yet we also had a couple of three, in fact, false prophets in that day. The first two were presumably cast into the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. And the third man named, named Shemaiah, he writes a letter to Jerusalem saying, why have you not stopped this guy Jeremiah from prophesying? And Jeremiah writes a letter back telling this man a very similar message to Hananiah. We read of that in Jeremiah 29, verses 31 and 32, where the Bible says this, Send to all them of the captivity, saying, Thus saith the Lord concerning Shemaiah, Shemaiah excuse me, the Nehelamite, Because that Shemaiah hath prophesied unto you, and I sent him not, and he caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, and his seed, he shall not have a man to dwell among this people, neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, saith the Lord. Here it is again. Because he hath taught rebellion against the Lord. The same phrase. The end of Jeremiah 28 and the end of Jeremiah 29. These two men and their families with Shemaiah's account, both of them dying, both of them not seeing the good of the Lord because they taught God's people rebellion. And this is what I would like for us to consider together this evening, the topic of rebellion. We have considered various teachings of Scripture on this in the past. And when we have done so, what we found as we consider those elements of life and human sinfulness of which God is most opposed, 
Rebellion ranks very, very high on the list. It was several years ago now that we considered the tremendous consequences of rebellion from 1st and 2nd Samuel. We're going to go back to one of those passages this evening as a remembrance. But it, this is a, it's such a wonderful time for this message. Because last week and this week in our Sunday morning services, we've been talking about God's design, right? And we've been talking about how God has a design and that God has called us to align with his design. And what we're going to find this evening is that when we, knowing God's design, knowing God's will, knowing God's desires, purposefully ignore it or, or, or stand against it, we are in a state of rebellion. And so we're going to focus in, if we can, on perhaps the consequences of taking what we're learning about right now about God's design and ignoring it. The consequences of that, or at least, as we might say, how God views our rebellion when we fall into it. So let's talk about rebellion. Rebellion is a revolt against an established authority unto whom one owes allegiance or a renunciation of a person or entity that has authority over you. Now, the word that we find in both of these passages in the Hebrew, when, when Jeremiah 28 and 29 use that word that's translated rebellion, it's not actually the Hebrew word that is most characteristically the word used to speak of rebellion. This word, the word that's found in Jeremiah 28 and 29, uh, actually means to turn, to defect, to apostatize, to withdraw oneself. It's definitely the idea of rebellion, but it's not the most common word. The reason why Jeremiah and, and particularly the Holy Spirit, as he inspired Jeremiah, used this particular word was because this is the same word that God used when he warned against false prophets earlier in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5, we read this. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shall thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. So we have this word here to turn, that, they, that the false prophet should be put to death who causes God's people to turn from the way of the Lord. And this same word is the word that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah 28 and 29 to speak of this rebellion, that these men taught the people of God to turn their backs on the word of the Lord, to turn their backs on God's extension of mercy, to turn their backs on God's call for repentance, to turn their backs on, on, on the Lord, on the word of God. And indeed, we see in the instances of Hananiah and Shemaiah in the days of Jeremiah that just as in the days of Deuteronomy when, when God said, you shall put them to death, that God does that to these false prophets. But the point was that there were, as we considered in our Jeremiah 28 message concerning false teachers, there were these men that were causing the nation to turn aside from the teaching of God's word knowingly and willfully to pursue some other end or some other priority. And this is rebellion. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to let God's word do most of the talking this evening. 
So we're going to do a lot of reading. And we're going to go to some notable rebellion passages. And what I hope will be the result of these notable rebellion passages is not so much that that I'm going to spend time with flowery metaphors and 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 uh, language as it relates to how you should feel about rebellion, but much to the contrary, I'm going to read the Bible and we're going to let the Spirit of God take the words of God and show us just how God feels about rebellion. And then the desire and the goal is that you, loving the Lord and desiring to please the Lord, understanding how He feels about rebellion, will then frame your mind as it relates to rebellion, specifically that you're not going to do it. That's the goal for this evening. So let's walk through the principles of rebellion as taught in God's Word to gain a greater understanding of just how God views rebellion against Himself and against other God-given authorities. Now the legacy of God's dealings with rebellion in the Word of God is actually quite vast, but we begin in Numbers chapter 13. We'll be reading a, a, a sizable portion of Numbers chapters 13 and 14 this evening. Within the context, God has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt, and within just a, sh- a few short months, they are on the doorstep of the Promised Land, ready to enter into that land of Canaan. Now, in order that God's promises might be verified, in the ears and in the hearts of the people, God commands that 12 men, one representative from every tribe, would enter into the land and bring a report back about what they see, about whether or not the land is as God promised it to be. So these 12 men are chosen by Moses and they enter into the land of promise as Moses commissions them to do so. And we pick up reading in Numbers 13, beginning in verse 17. The Bible says this, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this way southward, and go up into the mountain, and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they're commissioned to go in the land, and they are commissioned to find out how many people are they strong? Are they weak? Are they living in tents? Are they living in cities? Are those cities walled or are they unwalled? Is the land fruitful or is it lean? Bring back some of the fruit of the land. Let us see what the land looks like. Let us see the land that God is sending us into, that God has given to us. Now, take careful note that within the entire scope of this, it is let us see the land that God has given to us. This is, this is, a, a, it is a commission of faith. Go in and tell us what the land is like that God has given to us. No question as to whether or not God had given it. Just go in and tell us what the land is like. So they find these grapes, which they knew were by the brook Eskel. They bring a bunch of these grapes, which the bunch was so big that two men had to carry it between them on a pole. They bring some pomegranates. They bring some figs. And after 40 days of wandering in the land of promise, they return to the nation out of the land. And we begin to read their report 
in verse 27 of Numbers 13. The Bible says this, And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sent us, sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. And then presumably they show them the fruit. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. That would be giants in the land. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that were with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. So we have the men come back and report on the land. It was everything God said it would be. Indeed, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet there were giants in the land and the people were strong and, and, and there were men in the mountains and there were men in the valleys and it was well inhabited already. And Caleb immediately speaks up and says, so let's go get it. God has given us this land. Let's go get it. God has said it's ours. Let's go get it. God has said he will drive the people out from before us. So let's go get it. But then the others that were with him said, no, no, this land is too strong for us. The people are too many for us. There are giants in the land, the sons of Anak, of the giants. And this land swallows its inhabitants. They give an evil report and the Bible says that the evil report prevailed among the people. So we read this in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Turn, right? That's that word, to turn, to turn aside, to withdraw oneself. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, who was one of the twelve that went in, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who was one of the twelve that went in, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. In other words, it's everything God said it would be. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. 
Now we learn something very important about rebellion here. And God is indeed very angry with the people. He desires to destroy the entire nation with a pestilence as the text continues. If, uh, it's not on our, in our text, but if you're following along, verse 11, the Lord says unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with a pestilence, and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And then Moses, as he does so many times, falls on his face and intercedes before them in, in the face of the Lord, and the Lord uh, repents of the evil that he had thought to do unto them because he is a God who is long-suffering and good. And so the Lord says in verse 20, I have pardoned according, un, according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So one of the things we find about rebellion from this passage is that rebellion exists and thrives in an environment of faithlessness. Caleb and Joshua did not deny that the people of the land were strong. Caleb and Joshua did not deny that the sons of Anak were in the land. Caleb and Joshua did not deny that the strongholds, that the walls were tall and that the armies were great. But they weren't concerned as the other ten were, as the people were. What was the difference? Well, the difference was their perspective. That these two men had a perspective rooted not in the denial of the physical circumstances which stood before them, but rather in the confidence of the promises of God that He had already given unto them. That in spite of the physical circumstances, God had said, this land is yours. So they said, what does it matter what the people look like? The land is ours. Let's go get it. And at that point, the people had a decision to make. Do we trust and obey the Lord who brought us out of Egypt, who fed us in the wilderness, who gave us his word, whose voice from heaven literally made them feel like they were going to die when the mountain was on fire and he was speaking his Ten Commandments to them, who gave them water out of the rock, and that rock was Christ, who led them through the wilderness by the pillar of fire and by the pillar of cloud. Do we believe that God... Or do we just say, uh-oh, there's strong people in the land. It's time to turn around. Do they trust the Lord or do they flatly refuse the one thing he has commanded them to do? Well, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb implore the people to trust and obey rather than to rebel. But the people did not listen. And not only did they not listen, but after all of the pleading of Joshua and Caleb, the people's response is, let's kill these people. Let's stone them with stones. Let's stone God's appointed authorities. Let's stone those who are standing up in faith and let's appoint captains and let's turn around and let's go back to Egypt. As I mentioned and as we read, God intervenes, intends to destroy the people. Moses intercedes. God accepts Moses' intercession. He does not destroy the people. But as a consequence for their rebellion... He refuses to allow anyone to enter into the promised land from that generation, save Caleb and Joshua. Those are the only two from that generation that were allowed to enter into the promised land. I've mentioned this before. 
What do you think Moses and Aaron were thinking when God only mentioned Caleb and Joshua? We, we know that by the end of the 40 years, they're not allowed into the land, but that's going to happen, I mean, decades from now. And yet God says only Caleb and Joshua will enter into the land of promise. So for 40 years, they're going to wander in the wilderness until that entire generation dies off as a consequence of their rebellion. And this element of rebellion is a faithlessness rebellion, a rebellion that says, I know what God's word says, but I don't believe it. I'm going to believe what my eyes see. I'm going to believe what I feel. I'm going to believe what my, my senses tell me above what God has told me. And so what I know what he wants me to do, and I'm turning back. That's rebellion. And God judged it very harshly. Well, it was not long after this. Moses has interceded for the people. There have been some commands as it relates to ceremonial law. And then in Numbers chapter 16, there is a group that is dissatisfied with the leadership of Moses and Aaron. We begin reading in chapter, uh, in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 16, and the Bible says this, Now Korah, the son of Idzhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. So we have one Levite, and then we have two men of the sons of Reuben, and the Bible says they took men and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So they gathered together a group of influential men among the assembly, 250 of them. So you have Korah, Dathan, Abiram, 250 princes. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So Korah, Dathan, Abiram, 250 princes, they're standing before Moses, before Aaron, and they level an accusation against these men that, that Moses and Aaron are being power hungry that they are taking all the power for themselves, even though the whole congregation is holy, yet these two men are taking all of the authority and responsibility for themselves, and they're making bad decisions, and they don't like it. They claimed that Moses and Aaron were stripping the people of their God-given right to stand before the Lord. And so they opposed Moses and Aaron. But here's the problem. The problem is God had chosen Moses and Aaron. The problem is God had commissioned Moses and Aaron. The problem was it was God's will that Moses lead them. The problem was it was God who chose Aaron to be the high priest, not Moses. Now, they may say Moses did because they weren't there when God told Moses these things. Why weren't they there? Well, remember back in Exodus 20 when God spoke to them and they looked at Moses and they said, Moses, never, ever, 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 ever again let God speak to us face to face. You talk to God, then you talk to us, and what you say God says will believe. And here they are, standing against Moses, the same guy whose face shone with the glory of the Lord who had to veil his face because it shone with the glory of the Lord as he exited the tabernacle. The man who talked with God as a man talks with his friend, and Aaron, who was appointed the first high priest, 
who performed those sacrifices of the first high priest, when the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice from off the altar, whose sons, Nadab and Abihu, were killed because they offered strange fire, and Aaron could not even mourn for them because it would cause the Lord to be displeased with him. And here they are standing against these two men saying, we're not so sure that, 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 that God should be leading us through you anymore. Now to this end, to oppose Moses and Aaron was to oppose God himself. And we don't just say that. This is how God saw it. We want proof that God saw it this way. Well, Moses tells these men to gather themselves together to allow God to show the people who he wanted in charge. Did he want Moses and Aaron in charge or did he want the congregation in charge? So the 250 men get censers, which would be a burning of incense and they each get one. These would be uh, what the high priest would use as he'd go in before the Lord to offer the, uh, the incense on the altar, uh, which represents the prayers of the saints. And so they each take a censer in their hand. And Korah and the 250 stand before the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, Dathan and Abiram weren't there on that day. Why weren't they there? Because Dathan and Abiram would not even, would not even stand before Moses. They said, we're not even going to come present ourselves to you. You don't even deserve that. So they, stood, they stayed in their tents during this exercise. And, but Korah... And these 250 stand out before the temple with the censers in their hand, ready to see God approve them in their holiness rather than Moses and Aaron as the leaders of the congregation. Moses then tells the people that God would demonstrate his will. We read number 16, picking up in verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. If these guys grow old and die, then I am not of the Lord. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave literally split asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods they and all that appertained unto them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation and all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them for they said let the earth swallow us up also and there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense So the earth literally swallows up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and all that pertained unto them. The, you know, the Dathan and Abiram wouldn't even come out of their tents. Tents are gone. The earth just swallows them up. And then these 250 that are holding these, in, these censers are burned with, consumed by the fire of the Lord. But the problem of the people didn't end there. See, God was really angry. So immediately after this event, because the congregation did not stand with Moses and Aaron, God immediately begins plaguing the people because of their lack of support for Moses and Aaron. And in this we find that God holds men accountable, not just for, their, for direct rebellion, 
But if all of those who know better sit in silence while men rebel against God and his authorities, God holds them accountable as well. Numbers chapter 16, verse 49 tells us that by the time Aaron was able to intercede, and by the way, it's Moses and Aaron that get up quickly and go through the process of interceding for the people so that all the people don't die. The very people that had been resisted, right? Moses and Aaron, the ones that all these people are saying, you're not our leaders. As soon as things go bad and they start fleeing for their lives, Moses and Aaron say, we've got to save the people. This is good leadership. By the time Aaron was able to intercede for the people, 14,700 of them had died. Rebellion can come from a lack of faith in God's word and so a resistance to God's commands, like we saw when they refused to enter the land. And by the way, if you want to continue to read, the rebellion doesn't even stop there. Rebellion can also come, believers, by standing against God's appointed leaders. Let's continue walking through some examples of rebellion. We must next learn that rebellion among God's appointed leaders is possible as well. That God's appointed leaders can rebel. A few chapters further, Numbers chapter 20. The Bible says, Then came the, congregation, then came the children of Israel, excuse me, and the whole, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Would God that we had died when Korah got swallowed up by the earth. Would God that we had died when those 250 got burned up. Okay? <laughs> okay? They're not thinking rationally. Verse 4, And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt and bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or figs or vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. So the people are again murmuring against the authority that God has placed before them. They're murmuring against God's provision. They're even murmuring that they're not in the promised land that they themselves refuse to go into, right? Rebellion can have a unique effect on people. It can cause us to lose perspective. When we start to set our hearts against the Lord, God judges rebellion with darkness and we stop seeing things clearly. And now it's all about us. And now we're losing perspective. And now it's offenses against me. And now it's what God has done against me. And now it's all the things that are, uh, that, that, that are going wrong for me. And they don't even see the inconsistency. They don't even see that they're not in the promised land right now because they refused. They don't even see that Korah and Datham and Abiram and the 250 died because they withstood Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They, they, don't, they don't get it. They're lost in the darkness of their own rebellion. Moses and Aaron do what they do. They humble themselves before the Lord and they say, God help. We continue reading in verse 7, Numbers chapter 20. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, that would be the rod that Moses has had since the burning bush, 
And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord and he, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts too. So now we have another problem. Moses and Aaron now are the ones that lose a little bit of perspective. Moses rightly calls the people rebels, for they are, but then he oversteps his authority. See, Moses is a God-delegated authority, right? This is why Moses and Aaron keep falling down before the Lord on their face, because they recognize that this is God's people, that this is God's authority, that it is God that they're resisting. But at this moment, Moses got a little bit of personal indignance into him, and he began to take their rebellion personally, not as much an offense to God that needs to be solved God's way, but as an offense to him and to his brother. He's been worn down a little bit. And his anger turns from righteous anger against the rebellion of the people against God to an anger against the people for an offense against his leadership. Things get personal. And in this state, Moses gets a little selfish. And in his selfishness, he doesn't speak to the rock like God commands him to. Instead, he hits the rock twice. And water comes out. The problem is God did not tell him to hit the rock. God told him to speak to the rock. And we find in this that Moses solved the problem by asserting his own authority and by vindicating himself rather than asserting God's authority and vindicating God. And the people get their water and the beasts get their water, but there is a tremendous consequence for Moses' rebellion. We read through verse 11. The very next verse, verse 12, says this. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. It's amazing, is it not? The people have rebelled. They're wandering around. They're not going to enter the land. Their children will enter the land. Now Moses takes this misstep. And because he is the leader and because the accountability and responsibility upon leaders is so great, when Moses rebels in this manner, now Moses can't enter. Now Aaron can't enter. Why? What, what's the big deal about hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock? Well, what we find in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that they followed the rock that was before them and this rock was Christ that this rock was Christ. Now, all of the ins and outs of what that means, we don't really know. It's very possible that, 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 that this, this rock that they smote, that as they wandered, the stream followed them, perhaps. The Bible says the rock followed them. We don't know what that means. But what we know is that this rock, at the very least, was a direct representation of Jesus Christ. Which means what? which means the people cry out for water. If any man is a thirst, Revelation tells us, let him come and drink of the waters of life freely, right? They thirst for water. 
The rock is smitten, and out of the rock that was smitten comes forth living water, a spring of living water. Now here's the problem. The rock is never, ever, ever smitten again in order to bring forth living water. Christ is not smitten a second time. He is not crucified again. So when Moses hit the rock, he marred the picture. He marred the image. He took this type of Christ, this picture of Christ, this rock which was Christ, and he crucified it again. He smote it again instead of speaking to the rock and it bringing forth. On top of that, of course, he, he, he disobeyed the Lord. And as it says here, he failed to set God apart. He failed to sanctify the Lord in their eyes. He actually rebelled against the Lord himself and thus became one who taught the people rebellion through his actions. And so now he would share in their consequence and he would not enter into the land of promise nor would his brother. So we read, as we get to the end, in Numbers chapter 27, verses 12 through 14, the Lord said unto Moses, Get thee up unto this Mount Abarim, and see the land which I have given unto the children of Israel. And when thou hast seen it, thou also shalt be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother was gathered. For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of the congregation to sanctify me at the waters before their eyes. That is the water of Meribah in Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So Moses would not see the land and God says, because at the strife, when the congregation was striving against you, you rebelled against me. In response to the people's rebellion, Moses rebelled and his rebellion would not go unnoticed. His rebellion would not go undealt with. So rebellion can come from a lack of faith in God's word and so a resistance to God's commands. That's what we see from the refusal of the people to enter into the promised land. They did not have enough faith in what God said they could do. They turned away from God's promises. They turned away from God's commands. They rebelled. Rebellion can also be reflected in standing against God's appointed leaders. That God has a design and he has appointed leaders as a part of that design. And when we stand against those leaders, we stand against the Lord. Rebellion can also come from a selfishness or a pride, from an imbalanced perspective that causes perhaps a God-appointed authority, a parent, a pastor, a government official, whatever it might be, to extend his reach beyond God's appointment and take upon himself authority which is not his, and that is rebellion. I want to go to one more passage. I told you we'd find our way to Samuel, and I want to go to one more passage in 1 Samuel 15 to round out our understanding before we bring it uh, to a, a close. In 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 3, then we'll skip to verse 7. The Bible says this, this is about Samuel and Saul. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken. 
unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Skipping to verse 7. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah, until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, that they utterly destroyed." So Saul is commanded by God, we read in verses 1 through 3, to utterly destroy all of Amalek. Utterly destroy it. Everything. Without fail, without deviation. So Saul attacks the Amalekites. The Lord blesses the battle. He destroys them. He conquers them. And he destroys everything that's vile and refuse. But he keeps Agag alive. And he keeps the best of the goods, the best of the animals. We'll find in a moment that Saul has genuine reasons for making the choices he did. But genuine reasons for an action don't always mean that they're right reasons. Having a good reason doesn't always make it a right reason. Having a valid reason doesn't always make it a right reason. Having a genuine, being authentic doesn't make you right, right? So we read, beginning in verse 10, we'll read a good chunk here through verse 23. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, <coughs> excuse me, and is gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They, I guess that would be the people, have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto, the Saul, stay, unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he saith unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, before you were too big for your britches, when thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the, Lord, the voice of the Lord I, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep 
and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord God in Gilgal. He says, I have done it, although I did keep the king, but that's just a little thing, right? Everyone else is dead. And then the people, they kept the best of the other things to sacrifice to the Lord, a good reason. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast reje rejected the word of the Lord, thou hast also, he, hath al he hath also rejected thee from being king. Two sins here. First, the rebellion. God says, destroy everything. Saul says, I'll destroy everything except what I don't want to destroy. Then the stubbornness. He's confronted with his sin. Samuel says, look, the oxen, the sheep, they're still alive. You haven't obeyed. Agag's alive. You haven't obeyed. And Saul says, uh-uh, I have obeyed. I will not give in. I will not repent. I will not relent. I have obeyed. And God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. A God-appointed leader steps outside the bounds of his authority when acting according to the Lord's commission. He sees the task that the Lord has called him unto. He alters the task to fit his own ends rather than the Lord's ends. He twists the thing that the Lord has called him to do in order to make it make sense to him. And he's in rebellion. And God says, being in rebellion is just as bad as conversing with demonic spirits. Being in rebellion is just as bad as invoking demonic spirits. And stubbornness, obstinacy against the Lord, obstinacy and refusal to repent is just as bad as worshiping false idols, is just as bad as bowing before false gods. And in this passage, we see just how God sees rebellion. Rebellion is defiance to God's order, defiance to God's design, defiance to God's will, defiance to God's commission, just as witchcraft is. Stubbornness is a refusal to yield to truth when it is understood and known, just as is iniquity and idolatry. Iniquity, a bending or a twisting of the commands of God so that God says something and I say, I don't like it, I'm going to twist that to make it what I want it to be. That's iniquity. Idolatry. I'm going to forge a God in my image that will be more acceptable to me, that will make me feel better about me, that will wrap itself around me rather than me having to wrap myself around him. I hope that our time in the Old Testament has helped us understand the serious nature of rebellion. It's interesting to note that the word rebel or rebellion is not once found in the New Testament. And yet, there are plenty of New Testament teachings that reflect the dangers of idolatry, witchcraft, stubbornness, refusal to obey the Lord. James 4 tells us that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift us up. 
Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2 call us to subject ourselves to government as the powers that are ordained of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 calls children to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right as those who have been ordained as authority over them. 1 Peter 5 calls for the church to submit to the leadership of its appointed elders and those who have been ordained as the under shepherd of his people. As we considered this morning, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 23 through 25 call for wives to submit to the leadership of their husbands who is ordained of God to carry the authority of God. And all of these verses, among any of the other verses of obedience, call us to obey the voice of the Lord. Call us to walk in the spirit of the Lord. Call us to abide with Christ, to walk with him, to follow him, to not deviate from the way. And to oppose these forces, to oppose these authorities, is to oppose God. And thus, God hates rebellion against his authority and his delegated authorities. Second, God hates rebellion against his design. God has a way in which he has designed this world to function, and he has a way within which he has designed you. He has, uh, you are born into a world that is by God's design. And then those of you that have been born again are born again into a design. That you are elect according to his will that you may be holy and without blame before him in love. That you, may, that you are predestined unto an inheritance. That you are, are called to be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ himself. That is God's design for you. And when we step outside of this design, God is not well pleased. It's rebellion. And where there is rebellion, God must resist. God must judge. Third and finally, God hates rebellion against his will. When God has told us to do something and we oppose his will, we need to understand that we are in rebellion when God's word is plain and you walk contrary to it, you are in rebellion. God hates rebellion. God resists and opposes rebellion. Now, it would not be consistent for us to believe that God will cause the earth to open up and to swallow every rebel. As a matter of fact, Moses himself said that God would do a new and unique thing in order to show in this time who, was, who God had appointed. It would not be consistent for us to believe that every type of rebellion carries the same severity of judgment. Nor would it be right for us to ignore the reality that when a man in rebellion repents of his sin, God is without fail faithful to forgive. But though Moses repented of his rebellion, he still did not enter the land of promise. Though Saul would eventually even repent of his rebellion, he was still rejected from being king. And so it is that the whole of Scripture compels us to these ends, that we understand first and foremost just how much God hates rebellion. The knowing, willful refusal to do what we know God wants us to do. The knowing, willing refusal to reject God's design in this world. The knowing, willing refusal to step outside of God's authority and his appointed authorities. It's rebellion. We know now how God sees it. And thus we would be called to position our hearts unto humility and to submission in every avenue of God's authority and design. 
In Jeremiah chapter 28 and 29, we were introduced to two men, both of whom died untimely deaths, both of whom died untimely deaths because they taught the people rebellion against the Lord. Such was the severity of God's opposition and judgment to said rebellion. And the question which I commend to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart this evening is simply this. Does rebellion exist in your heart? Are you living in rebellion? Now, if the Spirit of God is working, the next question is this. Are you going to get stubborn? See, because rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion is the turning away from the Lord. Stubbornness is when you are confronted, you hold your ground. I don't know what's going on in your heart right now. I don't know what the Spirit of God is saying to you, but I know this, that if rebellion exists in your heart, maybe you didn't even know it. Maybe you weren't as aware of it as you should have been. Maybe you were. And if the Spirit of God is confronting you, if you choose stubbornness, you're going to find yourself going down a path that you do not want to go down. Where does your way matter to you more than God's way matters to you? Where does your willingness to acknowledge God's authority, either direct or through an appointed representative, end? What are the limits to your submission to God? Where is their rebellion? If the Spirit of God is placing His conviction upon some element of your life where rebellion is found, may I encourage you not to be stubborn, not to set your heart against it, but rather to submit yourself, to repent, to get it right. Because rebellion is very serious to the Lord. We see it in Jeremiah 28. We see it in Jeremiah 29. We walked through any number of passages tonight that show us just how serious rebellion is before the Lord. Let's not position ourselves in the path of that kind of evil and of God's response to it this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.